This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15 Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, this is Joan Neuberger, your host for this episode of 15 Minute History. Today, our guest is Stephanie Jones Rogers. She is a faculty member in the history department at the University of California at Berkeley. And she is a fellow here at UT Austin this year. Stephanie, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Stephanie's just written an extremely interesting book about Southern white women who owned slaves. Uh, And she tells us that slave-owning women not only witnessed the most brutal features of slavery, they took part in them, they profited from them, and they defended them. But historians have really neglected these women because their behaviors don't really conform to what we assume about 19th century white women and uh, Southern culture. So my first question is, how did you realize that there was a story here to be told that was different from what historians have told us about white women? So back in graduate school at Rutgers in 2009, I was prepping for my comprehensive examinations, reading um, scores of books from, um, you know, like the subfields of his- of slavery, but also um, the history of um, women, Southern women in particular, um, as well as African-American history. And I noticed that there was um, what seemed to be a disconnect between the subfields around the issue of uh, white women's economic investments in the institution. So they there seemed to be a consensus amongst all of those subfields that, you know, women benefited um, indirectly from um, the economy of American slavery, typically because um, male uh, family members owned slaves and so they could benefit from the, the profits of their production and reproduction, but also from um, their labor within the household and across the landscapes um, of, of slavery of the South. But they seemed not to be interested in the question of whether women um, more broadly, and and in my particular case, um, married women, were um, economically invested in the institution. And so when I looked at what African-American historians were saying, um, they drew upon um, a body of of archival documents that um, rarely appear in um, the histories or up to that point um, in the histories of white Southern women. um, And very rarely did they um, factor into to economic histories of the institution of slavery, and they were um, about two two thousand, a little um, a little under three thousand um, interviews that had been conducted by the federal government with formerly enslaved people throughout the South. And in those interviews, um, federal employees asked formerly enslaved people about their experiences in bondage, and they typically would talk about female owners, about um, women who bought and sold them, women who had inherited them, um, women who had um, been given um, gifts. Of, of enslaved people as as girls. Um, so I basically charted the story or reconstructed the story that those formerly enslaved people um, told about white women's economic investments in the institution. Um, so um, by looking at these sources with a new set of questions, particularly questions shaped by my interest in, in women's history um, and white women's um, economic um, investments in the institution, I was able to find um, a, a kind of abundance of of, um, of uh, anecdotes and, and other you know factoids um, and details that I was able to corroborate in other sources um, from looking at um, the, the testimonies of formerly enslaved people. Mm-hmm. So your research tells us a lot about how um, slaves felt about men and women owners um, and also gives us a whole different picture of 
uh, slave owners' marriages, marriages between men and women. Um, so conventionally, we think of women as being financially dependent on men in the in the nineteenth, eighteenth centuries, um, but not always. So ownership of slaves gave women some financial independence, but at the same time made them. Uh, uh, dependent on their husbands because men got control of wives' property when they got married. Um, so let's begin talking about that by just how did how did women or girls come to own slaves in the first place? So looking at what formerly enslaved people had to say shows that um, many young girls um, inherited enslaved people when they were even infants. So there are in- instances in which. Um, Young girls who were just one, one year old, were given um, enslaved people as their own who also happened to be um, newborns or infants um, at the time of the gift. So they were re- they received enslaved people as as gifts um, upon birth, um, dur- at, at birthdays, um, for Christmas, uh, also um, s- simply just for no reason at all. But um, most importantly, what I found is that formerly enslaved people frequently talk about um, white Southern girls and young women receiving enslaved people at the point of marriage. So um, at the receptions, the wedding receptions, or um, shortly before or shortly after um, marrying, they received um, enslaved people as wedding gifts um, and wedding presents. Um, And then beyond that, um, they also um, inherited enslaved people um, while um, their um, elders were still alive. So we typically think that um, if if women were to inherit um, enslaved people, they would inherit them at the deaths of family members. Um, But what formerly enslaved people talk about and then what I was able to further corroborate in in legal documents is that many um, white Southern women were receiving um, advancements on inheritances that they would have gotten um, later in life. Um, So those are some of the primary ways that they received um, enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So then um, what are the numbers? What percentage of women owned slaves and um, what uh, percentage of slaves were owned by women? What can you tell us about the proportions? So the numbers question is a really interesting one, in large part because um, gender um, shapes uh, my ability to answer it, um, or rather not answer it in completion. And I should um, explain what I mean by that. Um, So first, I should start with what we do know. Um, Scholars um, of of British slavery, um, such as Catherine Hall, um, who um, recently um, compiled with a team of, of other historians, compiled data from B- British parliamentary records um, from the emancipation era, shows that um, 40% of the applicants who applied for compensation when Britain abolished slavery were women, were female applicants. Um, similarly, when I looked at smaller um, samples um, of, of archival documents, um, typically bills of sale um, in select southern cities. In this particular case, I looked at the state of of, uh, South Carolina. I, too, found that the numbers approached um, 40 percent in that particular sample. Um, 38 percent of the individuals who were identified as a female um, buyer or seller uh, were were actually women. Um, And that doesn't count for um, issues surrounding um, just simply initials being um, noted for um, a buyer or a seller. Um, So instances in which you can't determine the gender of the buyer or the seller. Um, 
And so that leads me to some of the um, problems around coming up with a firm number to provide and one, one of the reasons why you don't see that in the book. So because of gender norms and gender formalities, formalities, legal formalities in particular around um, issues um, related to property, um, there are instances in which uh, women, a female owner, would not be identified on certain legal documents or financial documents. Um, in, in the case of some of the many of the women that I talk about in this book, um, they were able to maintain control over enslaved people through separate trusts. So like trust funds, um, what we refer to as trust funds today, or through marriage settlements or marital contracts, which are um, very much like prenuptial agreements today. And in those cases, um, a separate estate, a trust estate would be established for them, um, which would protect those enslaved people and would also dictate the terms by which someone could or could not interfere with, dispose of, um, invest in or not invest in, um, to, to manipulate in any way um, the property um, in this particular case, the enslaved people in those in that particular estate. And a trustee, um, typically a male trustee, would be placed in control um, of that estate. However, in many of the clauses, um, the, the kind of details of those estates, you can see that women um, secured for themselves a significant amount of control and a significant amount of say over what the trustees could and could not do. However, when a historian like myself goes to try to find a woman um, in certain documents, um, the fact that the trustee's name may appear on the legal documents means that I'd have to do a little bit more digging or a lot more digging to try to figure out whether there's a female owner involved. Um, and so that's also the case with um, census data. So there are, um, in 1850 and 1860, the federal government decided that it was time to enumerate um, the number of enslaved people in the country. And when they did that, they also identified by name the owner of those individuals, those enslaved individuals. Women appear throughout the census data for 1850 and 1860. But in the case of those women who have separate trusts, again, you see this problem of um, the census enumerators actually identifying the trustee as the owner rather than the female owner um, um, in in relationship to a particular slaveholding. So that also poses problems for the numbers. But from what I've found thus far, the numbers do approach um, the 40% range. And yet they seem to be, that seems to be a low estimate, right? Absolutely. The reasons you've just mentioned. Quite a low, a very low estimate, I would say. And then it it would seem that the the fundamental marriage relationship would also affect that. So women could inherit slaves um, or they could be given enslaved people as a marriage. But when they got married, all their property was um, legally given over to their husbands. Can you yes. talk about that and just sort of what kind of financial independence or dependence that involved? Right. So um, there was a doctrine of um, a legal doctrine called coverture or coverture, um, which basically said that if a woman, um, a single or widowed woman, owned property or earned wages um, prior to her marriage, upon marriage, that property, those wages, any wealth that she that she owned at the time would automatically become her husband. So her her legal identity and for most from from from, you know, much of I would say in many cases, um, economic identities were subsumed into their husbands. Um, And so many historians have looked to the legal doctrine of coverture and the impact that coverture 
impact had on um, many uh, women's um, abilities to own property or if they own property already to, to maintain control of that property and have, you know, assumed that on the ground, um, this precluded um, white women from investing in the institution of slavery um, in economic in, in the economic dimensions of slavery. But by looking at the ways in which women were able to circumvent the um, constraints of coverture uh, via vis-a-vis these um, these separate uh, estates that I referred to, or these marital marital contracts or prenuptial agreements that I referred to, you can see that um, they there were um, tools at their disposal that they could use in order to continue to maintain control over enslaved people, but also to acquire more enslaved people in the context of marriage. So by looking at the ways in which they were able to be legally savvy, I was able to also trace them into the slave market and to see how they're able to use those legal loopholes in order to be financially savvy as well. And the the you write a lot about the slave market in different in different contexts. Mm-hmm. And um historians have generally tended to think that the women who showed up there were just there to kind of watch. Um but in fact you show that they were deeply involved in trading. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. So um, there, there is this assumption that because the slave market um, was kind of characterized by, you know, this kind of a dark, it was a dark business, it was an ugly business, and it was a, a sexualized business. So there were sexualized um, and, and quite violent dimensions um, to um, slave market activities and to the, the purchase and sale of enslaved people, that this would be um, a kind of business that women would be averse to, um, and that they would avoid um, any kind of, um, they would avoid seeing it, observing it, or participating in it. Um, and what what I what I argue in the book is that the slave market was really everywhere. And this is something that other scholars have have also um, have also maintained. But they they don't usually include the household in that kind of gro- broader um, kind of conceptualization of the slave market. And so by looking at what formerly enslaved people had to say, particularly about female um, ownership and female uh, white females in economic investments in the institution. You can see that the slave market was literally everywhere, including in the household, on the on the plantation, in the fields, but also in the parlors, um, and in you know on the porches and and um, so forth um, of the um, slaveholding household. Um, and so this allowed for women to white women to access the slave market without leaving their homes. But it also brought the slave market into their homes, and also I, I would argue kind of piqued their interest um, more broadly about slave market activities and engaging in um, activities within the slave market proper, the brick and mortar um, slave market. Um, so the the slave market is kind of dispersed throughout the South um, in spaces um, within the home and outside of the home. Um, and women were able to access it in um, all of its dimensions, in all of its guises. You you mentioned the what's really a moral paradox, or seems like in one today, that um, white people, men and women, considered the trade in human slaves to be a kind of dark business, but they defended it in so many different ways and um, obviously didn't want to see it abolished. Um, Did women think about their ownership of human slaves the same way they thought about ownership of other property like land or tea sets or houses or... 
Well, what's really interesting is that um, a scholar of um, early South Carolina, Cara Anzalotti, she found in her own work that um, the women who she examined, whose lives she examined, um, inherited um, more enslaved people than they did land. And that tends to be the case with the women that I explore in this book, that I examine in this book as well. Um, And so when you think about the fact that these women are inheriting um, far more human property than landed property, they are are, their identities are more deeply entwined with not only the the promise of slave ownership but the realities of, of slave ownership and so um, what what I what I actually show in the book is that um, you you do find women um, diminishing the human the human quality of of enslaved people the human um, the hu- humanity of enslaved people but there are also others who recognize fully the humanity of enslaved people and sometimes use it use it to try to keep enslaved people um, in submission. Um, and that might sound odd, but for example, they um, they understand that enslaved people treasure their familial um, relationships, their kinship um, relationships. And so sometimes they will threaten to sever those relationships in order to um, keep certain enslaved people in submission or to try to, um, to diminish the likelihood of resistance or flight. Um, so they fully recognize the humanity of enslaved people. So they do treat them um, as a different kind of property um, in many respects. But there are others who who do, I think, um, dismiss um, the humanity of enslaved people. But far more often, they they fully recognize that they're human beings and sometimes use it to to their advantage. Did um, enslaved people then respond differently to women owners and men owners? Um, so there are instances in which enslaved people make it very clear that they would not um, that that gender mattered to them um, in in terms of you know um, arguing or refusing, for example, refusing to be punished by a woman um, versus being punished by a man. So they saw some some enslaved people did see um, violence or or a punishment or discipline as um, something that only white men did or men did. But far more often um, they recognized the power. Um, of female owners um, um, as equal, um, they 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 saw parallels between and and fully recognized that a female owner could be equally brutal, um, but also have the same wield the same kinds of power over them in their lives um, as uh, male slave owners. Um, you you have a, a whole chapter on the the labor of enslaved women as wet nurses, that is, providing breastfeeding for their owners' babies. Um, this and and you point out that this is a subject that really hasn't been researched at all. Um, how widespread was that practice, and what does it tell us about what we know about white women slave owners, and what it what does it add to what we know about um, slave labor and enslaved people's experiences? So what was really interesting to me, interesting to me, as I um, as I you know did the research for this for this chapter, um, was that formerly enslaved people again were saying something very different than um, historians of white Southern women, and particularly white Southern mothers and uh, historians of Southern motherhood, um, were saying. So in the scholarship around white Southern women and white Southern mothers, um, there's an argument that pretty much is a consent. There's a consensus around this idea that these women, you know. Um, would only um, resort to um, the the use of an enslaved woman to wet nurse or an enslaved mother to wet nurse their child um, if there were no other options available, that these women were used as a last resort. And when when I examined what formerly enslaved people had to say about the practice, they they make it clear that there were 
a number of other circumstances under which white women would use enslaved wet nurses. And those reasons had to do with necessity, but there were others that had nothing to do with necessity, that they were um, merely using enslaved women as wet nurses as a matter of convenience. Um, and so while it's not, it's not, I don't think it's possible to actually um, determine um, concretely how widespread the practice is in large part because of its intimate nature. So this was a labor that um, I, I argue it was a form of, of labor um, that should be recognized as a skilled form of labor. Um, and any um, listener who has, um, <laughs> has had a child and has attempted to nurse their own child um, and has had difficulty like I did myself um, knows that it is a very, it's, it, it it acquires a, a whole set of skills <laughs> that you have to refine and you have to adapt and it might you know, vary from child to child, et cetera. So I do argue in the book that this is a form of skilled labor um, and that it's, it's one um, that was um, more widespread than scholars have argued, but how widespread is still difficult to determine in large part because of the intimacy of, of, the, of the labor. However, there is a hint that it was, it was more widespread, again, even than perhaps enslaved people knew, um, because there was a market um, that emerged in the South um, for enslaved wet nurses. And in the book, I talk about um, these uh, newspaper advertisements. So there are uh, um, newspaper advertisements which were very specific about wanting um, wanting or hiring out an enslaved woman to serve in this capacity. Many of those ads um, ad asked for an enslaved woman immediately. So there was a, a desperate need for them. But many others um, were simply, you know, specifying that this woman had either, you know, either lost her child or would be um, hired out without her child. So there, there's a there's a market that emerges, which suggests that there's a demand, a, a significant demand that moves beyond a last resort argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's skilled labor and it's also sexualized labor and intimate labor. So, um, do you get a sense from the um, from the enslaved people's testimony or from the other sources um, how it how it affected uh, the relationship between enslaved people and their owners, or did it? Um, do you get any sense of how it may have changed the white women owners' relationship to their slaves when they were using them as wet nurses, or was was it labor just like any other labor to them? Well, I can I can point to one particular instance in which an enslaved woman um, talks about um, how um, she she was. F- coerced um, to have sex with an enslaved man um, that her her female owner owned um, she she was she and this man were owned by by this woman Emily Haiti Henrietta Butler is the woman who I'm referring to and she talks about how this woman coerced them to have um, sex with each other and when um, those coerced um, sexual relations um, produced a child that she would sell the child if it was a boy or keep the child if it was a girl so there's this kind of economic or financial calculus that's involved Involved in, in these um, coercive sexual relations. She also talks about the fact that this was a, a multi-generational practice. So she also forced um, Henrietta's mother to engage in these coerced um, sexual relations as well. But what what Henrietta talks about, I think that's most profound, and it, it hit me um, quite quite um, acutely, um, is that she lost um, the child that she she gave birth to, and rather than allowing um, rather than allowing Henrietta to mourn the loss of her child, um, her owner Emily Haiti forced her to wet nurse her do- her own white child. Um, and when you read um, Henrietta's account, you can you can feel the bitterness, you can feel the anger, um, not simply because of the loss, but also the, because of the whole. Uh, 
kind of confluence of circumstances that arose in order to um, to put her in a position to be compelled to serve in this in this way. And I would suggest that um, while we don't have a lot of the voices of these enslaved wet nurses, we do have the voices of the children who were separated from their mothers um, so that their mothers could serve in this capacity, their enslaved mothers could serve in this capacity. They too are bitter. They too are angry. They too are um, upset about the trauma that emerged as a, as a consequence of the separation from separations that they experienced from their mothers. So they are not, <laughs> they are not in any way, um, 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 they, they were traumatized by these experiences. Um, and so the trauma was both, um, you know, on the, on, you know, it affected the mothers as well as the children um, in the community as well. Well, you chronicle many, many ways and the regularity with which white um, uh, slave owners physically tortured their slaves um, for what they call discipline or whatever for management or just because they were um, brutal human beings. And as a Russian historian who studied serfdom, in a way this doesn't surprise me because Russian uh, women serf owners were often known as being as brutal, if not more brutal than men. Um, but still, it was very... It's very hard for me to read this part of your book. Um, and I, I actually wanted to start, if it's okay with you, to just ask you, what, was it hard for you to write about or read about? Is, is this a different level of, um, uh, of, this, of the slave experience that, um, that you had to process in a different way? So I should um, be honest about the fact that I, um, I, I consider myself a historian of violence. Um, and I also, um, so I, I'm kind of, um, I immerse myself in 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 kind of violence in the past um, pretty pretty regularly, um, and I'm not saying that to say I'm desensitized, but I, I'm I think I'm fascinated by the history of violence in large part because I have a bachelor's in psychology, and so that was one of the things that drew me to to the history of slavery. Um, is like all of these questions that I had as a as a psychology major as an undergrad, I'm um, taking history electives, um, course um, courses um, as electives, and having lots of questions about how enslaved people endured the trauma of of slavery and the violence and brutality of the system. System. Um, and so when I came to write um, this particular chapter, um, it was in large part because of this idea that white women could not be masters of slaves. So there's a kind of pretty, um, I would say, widespread um, assumption that um, white women, because they're, they're, they're the weaker sex with quotations around it, that they couldn't wield the kind of power, the kind of, um, they couldn't be as brutal, they couldn't be as violent um, as white men. And so um, mastery was the purview of white men. Um, and so by looking at how formerly enslaved people described the violence that white women perpetrated against them or delegated to others so that it could be perpetrated against them. Um, what I found was that they talked about a system, um, a kind of a, a system that fell along a continuum. So there are these various strategies and techniques of discipline that women um, either, um, you know, kind of picked and chose what they wanted to, like what was, when, when they came to try to define um, and to develop a system of, of mastery, they they kind of chose from a host of strategies and techniques, those that were also available to white men. And so while writing that, I was 
certainly overwhelmed by many of the instances of of over the top um, uh, violence, um, the atrocities that white women um, were um, were able to um, perpetuate or to orchestrate in these um, in in many of the stories that I tell here. But what I was most interested in is trying to understand this broader system of of slave discipline and management and how white women used or deployed certain techniques and strategies in order to try to get enslaved people to submit to their will, um, try to get slave, enslaved people to kind of fall in line. And so it was very difficult. Um, there were um, cer- certain, certainly times when I would have to step away from the work um, and, and, and not just for a few moments, but maybe for a day or two. Um, I also often talked to my husband about what I was discovering um, and trying to process the, the emotions that emerged as, an, uh, as a descendant of enslaved people. Um, but ultimately, what I wanted to do was to do justice to enslaved people's testimony. Because for me, it's very difficult for me, and I know it's difficult for the readers. But ultimately, um, we, we're we learning about this secondhand. There were individuals who suffered um, who suffered these, these brutalities, these atrocities on a daily basis. And for me, it was more important to tell the stories that they deemed worthy of put into paper um, than, than my feelings. <laughs> but I did have to contend um, with um, the kind of the trauma secondhand mm-hmm. um, from, from what I read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um, and you give a very good sense of how uh, not just that women um, were trying to come up with a sort of system to create uh, their own of uh, a womanly form of um, control or ownership, but one that that was responding to their own sense of being um, different from the way men uh treated their slaves. I think one of the things that I, I found most um, um, most um, powerful about enslaved people's testimony about white women's mastery or um, systems of mastery is that they, they identified households in which both slave owned, both the white husband as well as the wife owned enslaved people in their own right and how um, their systems of mastery could, in fact, um, be complementary, but also um, be at complete odds with each other. And so you see these conflicts emerge and arise around um, those differences between how uh, white women um, uh, chose to um, discipline or not discipline their slaves versus how their husbands did or did not um, choose to discipline their slaves. So it's a really interesting way that enslaved people talk about these households that aren't ordered or or organized in the ways that we think about um, patriarchal households in the South. These are households where power was shared between men and women, um, white men and women, um, and not sim- and was not simply um, held by white men um, over all um, his alleged dependents in the household. So um, enslaved people were quite, um, I think, observant and, and really um, quite brilliant um, and eloquently articulated the ways in which um, s- slavery is uh, slavery was this complex system, and, and white women were fundamentally fundamental to it um, in ways that have have yet to be really kind of explicated. Mm -hmm. And you talk about just now about um, the ways that discipline was shared between men and women, but it was also shared across generations, right? Absolutely. So So, um, they um, formerly enslaved people talk about um, uh, um, enslaved 
mothers, I mean, uh, white mothers, slave owning mothers, um, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, um, also delegating um, uh, s- uh, forms of discipline to their children or sharing um, uh, sharing in um, disciplinary um, uh, uh, tactics or, or rituals, I think you could say, um, in instances. Um, for example, there's one case in which um, an enslaved, uh, older enslaved woman um, had a disagreement with a, a young white um, girl and accidentally knocked her over. Um, the young girl told told the woman she would tell her father when her father came home. She did that. The father began to whip the older enslaved woman. And then he took a break and gave the, the rod to his daughter and told her to finish the whipping until she was satisfied. So there are these ways in which um, it is a multi-generational um, system as well. One in which um, I, you know, I argue in the book, um, white women come to learn and acquire the skills of mastery, practice those skills, refine those skills, and and, and, in preparation for what's going to happen when they get married, which is they're going to come into their own, they're going to own their own, um, uh, own enslaved people in their own right, and they're going to already have these kind of systems of of mastery and discipline already kind of perfected, so to speak, um, so that it's not necessarily a learning process immediately upon marriage. They already know what to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Were there any women who decided um, that there was more to be gained from not torturing their slaves? And what does that tell us about the system? So, yes. So um, there were um, instances in which, you know, um, I talk about vicarious lessons. So these these young girls are watching, you know, their parents engage with and interact with enslaved people to see their their systems of mastery and discipline management. Um, And they they can choose, they can decide whether to adopt the same systems or to modify their own system, systems that they think would be better. And so there are daughters um, that I talk about in the book that do choose, they choose kindness. Um, so, to, you know, I think kindness should be, um, should have air quotes around it. They choose kindness um, as a strategy, um, a, as a, a disciplinary um, strategy um, in large part because, um, and there are other, there are many other um, slave owners who embrace um, or adopt uh, an incentivized um, system of, of discipline um, or lack of discipline. So instead of punishing, they'll reward um, an enslaved person who, you know, behaves themselves or whose family, you know, um, produces a certain amount of a crop or, or harvests amount of, a certain amount of a crop. Um, so there are um, systems um, that are not violent but are um, laden with incentives. And what I argue in the book is that looks like benevolence. It looks like kindness. But when you talk, when you look at what enslaved people have to say about those systems um, that are built on incentives and kindness versus violence and, and, and um, deprivation, they know that there's always a threat of sale. Even if it's unspoken, there's always a threat of sale. There's always a possibility that they might be sold for debt or they might be sold. They might be, um, in, you know, given to a daughter when a daughter moves to Texas, <laughs> which is something that you see a lot in the, in the narratives and they'll never see their families again or, um, that, um, they're, they're, their mistresses, you know, wants a new dress, so they buy a new dress. Um, so they 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 see violence as as um, an important kind of cornerstone of enslavement, but they also understand that even in abs- when when violence is absence, there's always the threat of violence. There's always the threat of sale and separation, and so those things um, are kind of always bubbling underneath the surface, even when um, they're not being brutalized or abused. Stephanie, thank you for writing such a powerful book that opens up this whole new side of um, the uh, ownership of slaves in the United States. And um, 
does such a good job of honoring the voices of the slaves who gave their testimony. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Joan, for having me. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.